Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. I am your host, your friend, your pal, your boon companion, Maddie C. This time around, my friend Kevin Richberg is back for more travel talk. Not to be outdone by the great Bill Boyle and his recent appearance, Kevin sat down ostensibly to talk with me for an hour on Southeast Asia, and mostly, we stuck to the script. Inside, you're going to hear detailed accounts of the Great Sweater War of 2012. Kevin's going to teach you how to translate English to English. You're going to learn about the foreigner's tax, and you're going to get a front row seat to grill in your own goat brain. Hilarious and thoughtful, I could think of no more engaging and wonderful human to be on the pod twice than my friend Kevin Richberg. Now let's go get some fugitive stir-fry. Here we go. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think my computer was trying to contact the outside world. I think it's been fixed. Uh, the the uh, microphone cord was pressing down on the uh, greater than sign. Trying to, the oh. microphone was trying to sig- send a signal out into the world uh, to communicate. There was a little beep going on. And um, <laughs> the, the map of Southeast Asia that I pulled up in order to sort of refresh my memory, what we were going to talk about was flickering back and forth. Oh my- and I was like, Jesus, there are ghosts. Oh, my God. I'm so glad one of us has a map. <laughs> <laughs> um oh my gosh so, so so okay let's just jump right in now that we've now that we've joked around mm-hmm. so when i brought this up to you and i said southeast asia now i know i kind of hinted to you about vietnam what is southeast asia the phrase conjure for you in terms of your own experience and sort of the things that first hit you uh it was one guaranteed like my mind goes to one place and one time and one incredible story uh, to those who were lucky enough to experience this in the old days, which was, is, kind of still exists, uh, tubing in Laos in a place called Veng Vieng. And to anyone who that rings a bell, the place Veng Vieng, um, they will know what I'm talking about and their eyes will light up. And depending on when they experienced this uh they'll be like oh my god i've got a story to tell and concisely it is there used to be no holds barred um tubing down a river from one bar to another all day long without any restrictions uh, the uh, imagine a ramshackle makeshift Disney World for uh, Westerners, mm-hmm. and in one of the only this is part of the reason why it's so absurd. In one of the only uh, communist countries left on the planet, the most capitalistic setup you could possibly imagine. You rented a inner tube from a set of local individuals who had their trade down to a science, how they would get the tubes back, uh, how they would get them to you, how they would get you to the starting point. And then all of these business people, these Laotian business people who had built constructs 
and I mean constructs, along the river to attract these tubers to spend more money on drinks, food, entertainment. Uh, For, forgive me, Kevin, because I, I, I want to kind of, I want to make sure that I'm following you here because I think I am. Yes. You get on a tube and yes. you essentially float down. What I think you're describing is essentially bourbon street, a, but made of water. A lazy river. You got to go in the dry season. A lazy, a lazy river. Like the Vegas strip or bourbon street or. Yeah. But yes. It's like, it's like that level. But imagine. Like, Imagine if the bars on imagine if the bars on Bourbon Street were tossing um, human safe grappling hooks out to your tube from a jetty, waiting for you to grab the grappling hook so that you could be pulled into a bar. And this happens all the way down the river for dozens and dozens of establishments that all are trying to attract business through greater craziness. Right. Uh, one place had what was, I was going to say affectionately because that's the turn of phrase, but possibly not affectionately termed the death slide. <laughs> and that was because people died going down it. Oh my God. Now what uh, year were, what year were you in Laos? I was there in uh, 2012, if my memory serves, I was the last class of people to do this before the government came in and shut it down. Uh, And did the government shut it down because of communism or because they thought it was unsafe? Oh, no, people were dying. Uh, They wouldn't have done anything if Western governments, you know, too many people who were connected uh, to, uh, to individuals in their home countries, you know, were dying, kids. Uh, you know, young adults um, would be, I mean, people would drown. People would get so drunk that they would go on, you know, bouncy castles and, and, you know, death slides and zip lines with no safety precautions of any kind. And, and here and there, the people would die because it was an unregulated, I mean, it was a Republican dreamscape of, of, no regulation. It's like a libertarian dreamland. Hey, oh, libertarian, libertarian uh, wet dream. If I can yeah. say that on this podcast, oh. literally a wet dream because it was too yeah. bad. No libertarians have ever had one of those because it, <laughs> it would require an involvement from another person. There uh, was no regulation. Dream. There was yeah. no regulation and people were dying at anywhere between a dozen and two dozen a year. Wow. Uh, and so and, this is this has in the last 10 years or whatever basically been shuttered. Or has it, it been was regulated? shuttered? It was shuttered in the season. I the season that I went was the last season it existed in the way that it was. Okay, and it was every bit as debaucherous and insane as people could tell stories about it. Everything that, that you could ever hear about this place was absolutely true. And then the government came in and shut the whole thing down completely. The tubes didn't go for run for a a few seasons, the government put in some restrictions. And now you can go, I looked it up to make sure I had my facts straight. You can go tubing now, but all you're essentially gonna get is one bar with uh, lots of regulation, uh, one bar open at a time, 
Oh, God. No, no, no still tubing after the sun goes down. That was another thing, too. People would still be on the tube in the jungle in pitch black darkness. And so you weren't going to be getting picked up at that point. So you essentially had to hike out of the jungle on your own. It was your own survivor. If you made it to that point, you weren't smart enough to sort of say, "Okay, I need to get to the end of this. This. um, Oh, my. And so you were you were the river by the time the sun goes down. And you were essentially there for a full day. Was that your experience? I did not go for a full day because I didn't. I think I clocked in probably at a, at around noon. Okay. And, and went until sunset. I, I pulled my tube out as the sun was was sort of disappearing beyond the horizon. And I remember thinking to myself, and I didn't drink heavily because I was, I was filming a lot. I was taking a lot of photographs. I was doing essentially reporting on this massive event. So I was trying to keep myself same, but I definitely enjoyed myself. I went down the death slide, you know, mostly sober and survived. Uh, I didn't do the bouncy castle, but I did do a couple of the other crazy, crazy things that they had set up. And it was awesome. It was absolutely incredible. That having been said, when I took my tube out at the end of the day, I also said to myself, this is heinous and awful and people are going to die. And what happens if you don't time it right? Because I looked and the sun was going down. Like what happens if you do not get out of the water? And I just had these, like, there's no city infrastructure here to guide you to where you need to go. And, and let alone the elements of what is essentially a jungle. And I have to assume having, having done this in a couple of, of spots where, it truly is what one would refer to as the third world where it's just kind of a remote oh, spot. Oh, it is very much the third world. You know, it's it's out in the middle of nowhere. As you said, there's no regulation. No one's taking your name down. You've not used a credit card for this. You, no, no, there, were de- there was no, a deposit. There was a deposit system. No paper trail, is there? There was a paper trail to find you at where you were staying. So the tube renters wanted their tubes back. So the way that they would do that is that they would take up the, in order to do it, there was a rental fee and there was a deposit. The deposit was significantly more than the rental fee so that these individuals could replace the tube, which to them was more important than you were. You were nothing. Uh, They had all your money and to get the, you had to return the tube to them to get your deposit back. And they were- they did that. They would give the deposit back. But if you did not bring the tube back by the end of the day, they would keep your deposit. And then these tubes, you know, they weren't the, the locals who ran these businesses were not going out into the tropical jungle looking for you. They were going out looking for no. the tubes. Right. <laughs> so that they could just put the tubes back into service. Like I said, capitalism. Oh, just. I mean, Bar you, none, thriving. You want, you want nothing but the market will solve the problem. There you go. Yes, yeah. the market was the market, everywhere. The along market will this river. kill you if you let it. The invisible hand was pushing your tube <laughs> from bar to yeah. bar to bar. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, what a fascinating place to start because that is not at all what <laughs> what I thought we would begin with. Um. So from there, where did you go? What when you're when you were in this area? Like, did you did you spend months in this spot, or were you kind of hopping in and out as you were traveling? No, I had actually I'd actually taken a bus um, from Hanoi 
in Vietnam to uh, Vientiane, which is the capital of, of Laos before going to Vang Vien. And uh, I had met uh, an American and, and uh, some British youngsters, younger than me, uh, on that bus, the, the 24 hour bus from Hanoi, which boy, if you wanna, if you want a bus to uh, give you a thrill, here's another, I mean, uh, going from one communist country to another communist country, I've got another story where capitalism uh, reaches in and takes your seat away from you that you have paid for on this bus. These buses were not just transporting people, they were also transporting goods and the stops that this bus would continuously make were, when we started, it was mostly people. But by the time we got a third, two thirds of the way uh, through it, there were a lot of goods on board. And when the goods, the goods were more important than the people, the bus drivers and the bus attendants made sure that you knew that, that when more goods were coming on board, you needed to move your butt, hand, feet, what, to accommodate the goods. And my newfound friends and I in the back, uh, we were doing that, we had the five seats in the back, were being literally smothered by textiles and sweaters. And we we actually had a little bit of a revolt against the, the, the bus attendant when it became, you know, we're going to drown in these clothes. This is a 24-hour trip, you know, trying to sleep. There's People are literally just chucking wares at us uh, commerce is happening. These, uh, these textiles need to get to Laos. We also needed to get to Laos. And so we told the, uh, attendant, like, no more clothes, no more clothes. We paid for this, no more clothes. And I think looking back on it, that was probably a really stupid thing to do because we could have found ourselves in the middle of nowhere and the clothes would have, would have gone on. I think, I think we, in other words, probably, in other words, if you had pushed back a little more, they would have made more room on the bus by just we pushed pretty hard. You. We pushed pretty hard too. Wow! At one point, I think I threatened to throw the clothes out the window, um, and that got them very irate. I think that I had been on so many adventures at that point where I thought of westernness and especially Americanness as a shield against everything. Oh, wow. um, and that is true in a great many places. I found it in Egypt, for example, that your life was worth more than so many other things, especially a local. Um, if you were involved in a local legal dispute in Egypt, you won simply by virtue of being worth more as wow. a tourist with money than a penniless local. And, and that, I found that in many countries around the world that you, human value was literally measured by how uh, much money you could possibly spend uh, and that you as a foreigner were worth more than and, and that legally that would be reflected in how you would experience uh, uh, your time there. And I think that coming from a society where we are so used to being terrified of law enforcement, um, I have been in endless numbers of countries where I have treated law enforcement with such 
not disdain. It's the, it's not the with such like I'm I'm uh, I'm the captain now. Okay, uh, you can boss around the locals, but I'm a foreigner. Rules for I'll tell me, you but how not this for me. Is gonna go. Right. In an, in an arrogance that in the United States will get you killed when interacting with the police. Um, and so I'm almost certain that even though I don't remember thinking that at the time on that bus, that's probably why I thought I could win the war against the sweaters. Um, <laughs> We we did get the sweaters to stop. The great, we, the, the trickle the great sweaters sweater did war of twenty twelve. Great sweater war of twenty twelve. Uh, I think though that the sweaters basically just went in somebody else's seat, probably oh, closer. They to the certainly front. didn't get taken so, off the bus. I promise you that. No, those sweaters made um, that journey. Now, is there in that part of the world? Is there is there a class system to the buses like there isn't much of the other parts of the world, like first class, second class, third class buses, or do you just get on a bus? Uh, that bus, if if my memory serves me, was just bus. Okay. Um, so there was it's pr- that we probably paid more than anyone who knew what they were doing on that route. That's almost right. assured, but that's par for the course everywhere. Is that there's a there's a foreigners tax, and but again the the amount of money you're spending, I don't remember exactly how much it was, but it, it easily could have been ten dollars for a cross national twenty four hour bus trip. It could have been twenty dollars. A local would not have been paying anywhere near that amount in, in in local currency, and that that's just sort of understandable. But again, the same sort of um, I can't even think. What would a twenty four hour bus ride be in the United States? Oh my God! I mean, uh, hundreds of dollars. I mean, if you wanted to get if you wanted to get from say, I mean, where you live in in central New York, if you wanted to get from there to say Miami. That's going to be at least, a, I got to believe, $150, $200 for a one-way bus ticket. I wouldn't, I, I couldn't even imagine what that would be like. I've taken dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred bus trips outside the United States. And I could not even imagine what it might be like to take a Greyhound that distance and what it would, what it would put me through. And it's so, I don't know what the first thing that's coming to my mind is like, I would never do that. But then again, I shared, you know, for $10 or whatever it was, I shared a seat for 24 hours buried in sweaters and was like, this is great. Because you didn't, you didn't know that there was another way to do it or you were willing to put up with the way no, to do it. No, that was just but, the way that I had chosen. Oh, I could have flown. I could have flown yeah. from Hanoi. And but this was just, you know, I, I made a lot of those choices to have the experience. Well, especially when you were you trying know, with, to report on it, you're sort of in a way you're kind of nudging the you're nudging the storyline, you're trying to to create or or sort of engender little moments, right? That's true, but you, there's only so much um uh there's only so much traction you can get out of telling people not to do something. So when you take an adventure and the adventure you come out the end of it going, "Okay, I don't recommend this to anyone." <laughs> You want like Vang Vien, I, I made a video of it and 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 then they immediately shut it down. I had nothing to do with the video, but I made this, you know, a YouTube video being like, this is amazing. And then I remember getting a message from somebody who saw the videos like, oh, they don't allow they don't allow this anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> this has been <laughs> shut down. <laughs> You and, ruined it. You uh, ruined before, it for everyone else, Kevin. I did not. I did not ruin it. <laughs> and in and in Cambodia, this is on the same 
um, uh, journey, but later on in Cambodia, I, I rented a car, which is not, uh, at the time, I'm not sure if you could do it now, but there's no Hertz or, or enterprise. It doesn't work like that. You sort of have to know somebody who will accept a price for their car Okay. or know a, I mean, I don't want to say that they're not a mafia, but a, a, gr- a collective of individuals who are who own a series of cars, who are willing to uh, rent them to foreigners. But you have to know somebody to know somebody to get that number. You so can. you kind of you have to have a. It could be, be different now, but happen, yeah, right? ten years ago, ten years ago, I had to reach out to contacts to get somebody in Phnom Penh, and who would. And it worked. It worked out fine. I, I I had by that point driven in so many different countries that that the I was comfortable with my experience level on roads that uh, you know would make uh, would make you blush or just be like I'm not doing this. That having been said, I've been in a lot of places where I've said Jesus. Uh, New York state could take a, uh, a page out of whatever these folks are doing here in the third world and pave something. Oh, for sure. Uh, it, it's not always just the poor, the country, the worse, the roads. Um, anyways. No, a lot of it is, uh, yeah. who chooses to reinvest in infrastructure actually. <laughs> right. Um, so what, and, what and sometimes the... in these countries, it's a rich person who, who, who doesn't want their road to stink. And so, uh, right. they do it for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I even saw some of that in Morocco where it was like, okay, so these are the places where the King wants to show off. And so this stuff is all really nice in this colony. And then one block over, it's just total shit. Um, yeah, Morocco has nice infrastructure and nice roads. It does. Uh, I, I drove it does. And up and down really, east west, and and that was no problem at all. And a really good, um, like a like a pretty solid uh, public transit system for a for a country in northern Africa. I thought it was I thought it was pretty good when I was there. They had uh, yeah taxis everywhere and buses that seemed to run um, pretty efficiently, and um, it, it, I was impressed. I was I was really impressed. Uh, what is the experience? I mean, I know it's only, I know it's been a decade, but what, what is the experience in terms of like the language barrier? Is there a problem? Like if you, if you don't, I mean, cause it isn't just that you're running in and out of a different language. You're, you're running out of a series of different languages and dialects, often which are utterly unrecognizable. I wish that I had been, I, I wish for one that I was more linguistically inclined mentally. I'm not. My mind has been able to pick up a lot of things, and I've been able to study a lot of things, learn a lot of things, absorb a lot of knowledge really quickly. With language, I am very much English only, and it's embarrassing. Um, Even my Spanish, which I can read and have modest conversations it didn't really improve no matter where i went in the world even when i lived in spanish-speaking countries i just didn't get any better because my mind isn't it's just not set up that way and so this is a long way of saying i was i was bad i was a bad american everywhere i went so i i what i did was i i chose to develop other skills I would not talk back to people when they were trying to communicate with me because almost everybody would try to communicate to me in English. And so I learned 
and this is something I would suggest to everyone, learn how to listen. Because if you can penetrate the accents that people use to try to use the words that they know, that that they have uh, been able to collect over time and hear them, you can go a long way to trying even if you don't have the knowledge to be able to communicate back to them in their language. And I got really good at that trick, at being able to hear English words through. I've actually translated English to English more times than I can count from people whose English was their third or fourth language, and they were trying to communicate with each other. And I would notice these situations you know, in Europe, in Asia, and usually it would be somebody who was uh, a merchant or hotelier or somebody trying to give a service to, you know, a European or a South American individual who they were going to do it in English because that was, you know, going down the the rung of what languages they knew. That was where the overlap was. Right. But they could not say anything to each other, which would be unrecog- which would be recognizable. And so I would come in and be like, "Okay, I can I can understand the words that both of you are trying to say in English. So you say it to me in English. I'll use slow American English to say it back. You know, the version that everyone's been watching in movies and television for yeah. the yeah. longest amount of time. So you'll understand me, and they'll understand me." We'll all be speaking the same language, but I'm just translating English into English. That's wild. I've never. And it was all because listening. Yeah. Well, and also having enough of a grasp of uh, being your native language to understand what they're trying to get at. And you can basically go, oh, I can I can fire those synapses in between so that I can get them to basically their destination. Sure. And and it works for me, too, because I, I like I said. I, I wasn't trying very hard anywhere I went. And that was one of the worst things about me as a traveler was I was insisting to the whole world, listen, if you want to communicate with me, we can do it with interpretive dance, uh, uh, sign language that is not authorized by any uh, entity, uh, facial expressions or English. And those are the choices. And I will work with you in all of those. We can do pointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do... All sorts of expressive things. Get out the easel, do like a win, lose, or draw kind of thing. Right. And this is now it's got to be even easier with technology. Uh, Apps weren't a thing. Well, Bill uh, Bill uh, Boyle. We're speaking about, but now, you know. Bill Boyle was just on uh, recently, and he and I, when we were talking about him traveling in Vietnam, he's like, I just take. I heard that story. Yeah. Yeah. He he does the Google Translate thing and uh, like Mm -hmm. went through the whole thing and had to buy a, you know, wanted to buy a bike helmet. And like, while you're telling the story about being the translator, I'm like, it's too bad Kevin wasn't there because then he could have just been there in between. Wouldn't need, wouldn't need the app. <laughs> um, are there any spots in, uh, in say, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand? I think Laos. I mean, that, I sort of think of that as Southeast Asia. I don't know if we're going to like Malaysia or Myanmar. If we're going that far, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to Myanmar right now. But um, I have never been to Myanmar. That of all the places, 122 countries, I've never been to Myanmar, and I would love wow. to go. And it was on. It was on and off when I was doing most of my traveling. It was off. Then yeah. it went on. Now it's off again. Yeah, it's uh, it's off hardcore right now. Um, but Thailand, Thailand is right there. Um, yeah. Uh, so. 
what's in there that you feel like is a can't miss? If people are going to travel to this part of the world, or they're like, I sort of feel like if I'm going to go this far, if I'm going to go to Vietnam, I really want to go to Angkor Wat. I really want to walk those grounds. I want to be a part of that. I want to see that. And you should. There, should. It's yeah, amazing. It's, it's, it's worth it. There are other uh, temple sites around, and I would uh, encourage people to familiarize themselves. The names are going to escape me. Everyone knows Angkor Wat, but Siem Reap has a lot of other sites that guides are more than willing to take you to, uh, legitimate guides, uh, not the person and, who guides and, you into the temple a, and asks you for the rest of your money. Yeah, and 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 in these places, do you think a guide is a worthwhile experience? Is that a, is that a better way to to do it, or can you do a self guided tour? Will you get anything I did out a of it? Guided tour. Okay, I did. Um, but that's just, you have to be willing to know exactly what you want out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I said this as a joke to our mutual friend, Pete Dominic, that, you know, you can take an African safari on your own yes. just by yourself. You get a pamphlet. Same thing, same thing at Angkor Wat. They give you a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. So you can walk in, pay your pay your money uh, and and be granted access to the grounds guides will continuously notice that you are without guide and and you'll have to tell them no if what you really want is to just have an experience on your own the value that they will bring is what it is if you don't want that you will be able to enjoy endless even if just photographic opportunities um peaceful uh, Again, religious is not the right word, but spiritual. That's it. Uh, Standing amongst the ruins can be very spiritual and having no one uh, talking to you about it. Just noticing things that you don't know why this is that way or why this pillar is there or what this means. Just taking it in. It's all worth it. And um, I'm assuming all of these sites in and around Siem Reap, that's, that's all gone. I mean, it's all just basically built out of the jungle, right? I mean, essentially, aren't yeah. they, are, aren't they, you I mean, don't these all have, yes, it's like a, a fair amount of wildlife, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of bird activity. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like you could sort of uh, get lost in that confluence of like ancient human space and nature taking over. It seems like that would just be mesmerizing for hours. It's very similar to if you go to the Yucatan, to any of the old uh, yeah. uh, Mayan I've, sites in the Yucatan, although they're a little bit more cleared. Uh, yeah, in, especially in the bigger ones. The like jungle Chichen. is a little bit closer to. Okay. Um, the have same you done, sort of, they had to unearth it from the, from the vegetation. Sure. Have you done any of the other kind of, um, I would say, more uh, Southern or classic um, Mayan cities. Like I was just in Palenque a couple of summers ago. Um, and that one is right in the jungle. That's that one is basically there's a little stream that runs right through. Have you been there? We drove from Mexico city, a friend of mine from college. Um, this was when I was still in grad school. So this is in the knots in the, the 20 knots. And we stopped at every single one that was along this route, this perilous, ridiculous route that I would never do again. But the younger me was like, yeah, we can totally do this. Yeah. We drove from Mexico City all the way up to through the Yucatan to Tikal down to Belize. 
Oh wow! Uh, we left it. We couldn't. We couldn't take the rental car across the border, so we left it in a hotel parking lot where we paid for it to have its own little hotel space. Oh my god! Uh, walked walked across the border, got a bus, and just continued on. That was uh, also. Th- this is how I know when it was. Look up when Saddam Hussein was hung. That was okay. exactly the time I was in Belize. So. Whereas I cannot remember the date, I can remember the most important thing that was happening in the world during that time. It was around the end of the year because it had to, uh, we were uh, New Year's. He was, when, um, let's see here. Oh, that's when, when he, was uh, he executed. It was, it was almost New Year's. It was December. End of December. Was it Christ, very, Christmas? Very good. December 30th, 2006, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And that's when we were there. Yeah. Um, isn't that, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I have, I have, like, I can tell you that, um, I know when I was on my honeymoon, but I can tell you that the most noteworthy thing that happened while I was on my honeymoon was that Allen Ginsberg died. And so I always associate Allen Ginsberg's death with finding out while, you know, I was in Cancun, literally waiting to get on an airplane and we got, we got an alert on like CNN. Yep. I could not tell you what year I was on my first Mediterranean cruise, but I could tell you that Chief Justice Rehnquist died on day one. Oh wow! So, um, and and because and, numbers numbers are are just like unless you're a mathematically um, inclined person, and and some creative people are and some aren't, y- y- numbers fade. And and I have a very hard time telling what year I was because associating years with these things is not is not how my mind works. I have more of a natural aptitude for that than kind of makes sense based on the way the rest of my brain works. To be honest with you, um, but. Yeah, I, I pick it up, but it's kind of a connection between the history and figuring it out and remembering the two and then doing sort of the mental math. It's a very, it's a very uh, uh, neuroatypical way to get there, I promise you. <laughs> um, so what, what do you think people, let's talk about the food. Let's just talk about the food. We got to talk about the food, right? Is it fucking amazing? We can talk about the food. Is it amazing? Uh, there's a. <laughs> I enjoy food everywhere. I enjoyed Southeast Asian cuisine. Um, when you say food, and uh, I think of uh, Vietnam, I think of Hanoi, and you asked me about language, and I walked into a restaurant by myself, and there were no English menus. It was a local restaurant. There was a Vietnamese. Um, there wasn't even a picture book, and sometimes there are picture books. I was just gonna just ask. Uh, Vietnamese lists of things, and mm-hmm. I knew from the tabletop design that it was a cook-it-yourself place. So there was a little mm. like not hibachi, just coals, hibachi-esque. Um, they gave me a whole table to myself, which was a waste of space, <laughs> and I pointed to um i the meats i knew i was getting goat so therefore there must have been some form of translation or a picture but i don't remember that the different sections were i knew the difference between pointing at a chicken dish pointing at a goat dish okay and so i just pointed and what came was a do-it-yourself goat brain Mm. so i took the brain of a goat and cut it up with my chopsticks 
and put it on the hibachi to heat it up, little coals. And it wasn't very good. Shot. But I finished it. Uh, and, and and was it was it a moment of of I'll be damned? It was if a I'm moment gonna... I wish I hadn't been alone. It was a moment because, where I was like, because it would have been hilarious. Oh, man, and I wish I had a friend. Yeah. Of all the things I could have pointed to, it wasn't the first thing. It wasn't the last thing. It was some something in the middle. And I'm sure that it was just, uh, here are the pieces of this animal that we can bring you that you can cook at your table for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and you chose one at random. Yes, I chose one and and the rest is history. I also did in Hanoi also um, a uh, little video purposefully to walk around with a local guide who was instructed by me to take me to every form of street food that we could come up with. And so that's where I had Balut for the first time was in Hanoi. What is Balut? Which is, Balut is the duck egg, is the duck mostly formed and killed right before that duck is ready to come out. So depending on how it's it's popular in the Philippines, um, as well as, it, it, I think it has different names in, in, in different countries, but it's whenever uh, someone says the duck egg, that's what they're talking about. Got it. And how is it prepared? Um, by the devil himself. He <laughs> comes and uh, turns this beautiful fetus animal into a horror that doesn't taste good. I mean, at all. Texture, no. It's it's bones and proto feathers and beaks, and and yet still retains that that sulfurous egg essence. So it's still it, it's basically no, it's none of it's it a, is good. It's a mostly formed bird, but it's still got that sort of unguin. Very. Uh, thing to it you can identify all the pieces oh that's you know that's not a selling point in this particular case no to know all the itinerary parts no it's something that people do to switch gears on that same uh that same day there we went and got the guide had uh a local um uh lady that he knew personally in her home prepare frogs big huge frog legs those were excellent but that was sort of a home invitation um experience so uh that was at the very end after i'd eaten a whole series of common food horrid things milkshakes that uh uh you know fruit milkshakes where i swear they found every fruit in the jungle that was not appetizing Wow. And and put it into these milkshakes. Um, or they were just screwing with me. The other th- well, that's possible too. The other thing I find so weird about yeah. that is like I you know, everybody loves to talk about durian, you know, which is this famously repellent fruit. Oh, sure. You know, mm-hmm. I, there's so much of that fruit that is beautiful and delicious and appealing. I don't understand why we are fetishizing this food that basically is supposed to taste like shoe leather and smells like death warmed over it 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 smells the smell is different for different people and i think that's there are lots of cultural things um i i find talking to people who um live in 
cultures where eating insects is regular, it just is a completely different taste texture experience. And I've eaten all the insects that there are to eat. I could see myself if I was raised on it, liking it, enjoying it, or just thinking what that the, it was nothing different than a celery salt, stick or a carrot stick. Like what are the salted and roasted grass? Is it a, Oh, everybody's got grasshoppers. Everybody's but got locusts on a what's stick. The, I'm trying to remember the, the Mexican one though that I've had a bunch of times. And they basically like, they just like flash fry them and then they put salt and lime on them. And they're, it's like eating chips. They, quite frankly, they are frying worse things at the Oklahoma oh, State Fair absolutely. right now than they are in Southeast yeah. Asia. So if you're frying something in Southeast Asia, I will take the mystery box oh, from Vietnam or Cambodia before I will take the mystery box from Oklahoma. Plus, there's probably like 3,100 varieties of pepper in that oil that they're frying it in. So whatever it is, they're killing the germs. Exactly. <laughs> Um, exactly. Or at least they're spicing it up to try to, to, to put something better now, into it than just what they started with. Now, are you somebody who likes uh, heat in their food? Or is that something where, okay. So were, were there times I when that was an issue? I into that. Okay. No, because by this time I had already traveled to India and that is where I really, um, I spent a, a good amount of time in India and this is... Uh, this is hours and hours of storytelling. Um, uh, this was 2010, between 2009 and 2010, uh, over the new year. I rented a car and, and drove uh, 12,000 miles across the entire subcontinent on an adventure I wouldn't recommend anyone do because oh my God. it's beyond the scope of what most people would be capable of pulling off. And even I had a couple parts where this almost didn't work. Um, and, and I ate so much local Indian food. And I mean, going by Adabo on the side of the road between two places that no American has ever driven between and just pointing at something or just sitting down. Many of them, I, there was one dish being served that night for travelers going down this road. So all you did was sit in the seat that only had three legs. And yeah. and and the and one in particular, a chicken dish that was just unbelievable. Indian food to die for cost $1.50 and was made by an individual who only had one arm. Oh my God. Just, See, that walk was going right. up and down and think, it was amazing. Think about that. Think about all the little pieces that you just mentioned that like you just rattled a bunch of things off and all it took was the idea of meal, hot food, Southeast Asia. Boom. You're not, you're not just reliving that. Like you're there and I, hell I'm watching it through the window. Like that to me, that's why you go places. I, mean, I know we talked Absolutely. about this before, but that's why you get out of your goddamn house is because stuff like that's going to happen. And a one-armed man is going to make you the best fugitive stir fry you've ever had in your fucking life. And I, I yeah, I, I hope the next time we get together, we can talk about India because my mom, I, I have countless stories from India. Oh, Kevin, my, my mother and my children have decided the next spring they're going to go together. They're going to, the three of them are going to go. And so I don't just want to talk to you about this for them, but like, 
what a, what a wonderful way for me to have an investment in it too. So I, I hope we can make this a semi-regular thing. I mean, I don't want to like monopolize your time. I would but... love to. I No, I, I, you can see how I light up when I get to, to relive. Uh, what, you, first of all, you have, and I haven't thought about some of these in, in, a, in a while, in a long time. Um, well, it's wonderful to get to share them with you again. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so very much to my friend Kevin Richberg for being on the show a second time. I really do hope that we can do this regularly. He's such a font of knowledge. He and Bill both. I just feel so privileged to get to call them my friends. They're smart. They're interesting. They have amazing experiences. And um, it's just really a treat to be able to talk to people like that and call them your friend. Um, thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being here. If uh, if you would be so kind, please rate, review, and uh like the pod wherever it is you get your podcasts please make sure that you are subscribed over at the substack it's what am i making.substack.com make sure you get a free subscription so that you can get updates to everything that i am doing over here and make sure that you are seriously considering a paid subscription because it's the only way that i can keep doing this work i'm putting in just an absolute ton of time and getting a ton of great feedback and i really feel like i'm hitting my stride but to be able to continue to do this I need your financial support. I'm working on a couple of different ways in addition to the Substack. So if you want to reach out and the Substack's not a great fit for you, please let me know. Um, get a hold of me and uh, and let me know if that subscription model is not the best way for you to contribute to the show. Uh, if you want to help out and you don't have dollars to spend, there are lots of things I could use assistance with, things like video editing, social media help, uh, all kinds of different um, web-based stuff, things like SEO that I have no idea what I'm doing. So if there are ways that you think you could help out and you want to contribute to the show, maybe even behind the scenes, I certainly would love to have your your expertise and your knowledge and your talents. Um, I can't pay you anything for them right now, but if you feel like this is an endeavor you want to volunteer in and you believe in what I'm doing, I, I sure would love to, uh, to have you as a part of it. Uh, thank you again for being here. I cannot do this work without you. Uh, your support means the world to me. Thank you, everyone who has already uh, supported this pod in every possible way. Uh, your support and your encouragement mean the world to me. Uh, I'll see you again very, very soon with another episode. And uh, until then, all the best, my friends. Cheers. Cheers.